You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So back in 1656, there was an English Puritan pastor named Richard Baxter who wrote a book for pastors called The Reformed Pastor. And by the word reformed, he didn't mainly mean Calvinistic, but he meant to be born again. When he said the word reform, he really meant the word revived. Because at that time, in the 17th century, it was not a given that pastors were even truly Christian. And so Baxter, who was burdened for the church in his country, he wrote this book urging pastors to first truly believe the gospel themselves. He wrote it to say, hey, first you, yourself, be changed by the gospel, and then from that, you can serve others. And in, in one section of the book, he, he says something that has really stuck with me. And I just wanna say, I, I know I've said this somewhere before, I can't remember where. So if you've heard me say this in the past, just bear with me, okay? I've, I've been helped by it, so I'm just gonna say it again. I'll probably say it again in the future. So just thank you for bearing with me. Here's the quote, this is what Baxter says. He's, he's speaking of pastors, And he says, quote, he, pastors, he preacheth not heartily to his people that prayeth not earnestly for them. In other words, he's saying that if a pastor wants to preach genuinely and effectively to his church, then he should be a pastor who prays earnestly for his church. And I think that this actually points to something much more central when it comes to the topic of preaching in the local church. And I just want to take a minute and I want to tell you what that is. And I realize this is, this is an unusual way to start a sermon, okay? I'm actually talking about what I'm doing right now, which is a little odd, but I want you to know the purpose for why we do this, okay? Every Sunday, at this moment, when it comes to the preaching, we're not doing this just because we think this is what you do, right? We're, we're, not, we're not doing this moment right here just because we're, we're trying just to go through the motions of where the church service is. When we do this, we're, we are not, as your pastors, we are not talking at you, but really and truly, we as your pastors are preaching for you which means that we open the Bible every week at this moment, and we as your pastors want to tell you what God has to say in Christ by His Spirit, and what God has to say to you, church. Ultimately, essentially, what God has to say to you, church, is that He loves you. Through your faith in Jesus, not on the basis of your performance, but solely because of the atoning death of Jesus in your place, God has fixed his love on you and nothing can change that. The only thing that can change is how much that you and me, the only thing that can change is how much we come to understand the depths of his love. And so when we preach, we preach for that. Our preaching, this moment here, this is for your assurance. 
This is so that you would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. We do this so that you and me, so that all of us would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Because I'm convinced that if we are assured of God's love, like if, if we, as individuals, if we are assured of God's love for us, then that will then lead to personal renewal. And personal renewal can't help but overflow into relational renewal. Right? So, so do you need help in your marriage right now? Need some marriage help? It starts right here. It starts here. Personal renewal leads into relational renewal, and then relational renewal leads into church renewal, and church renewal as it multiplies leads into city renewal, and that's what we're here for. That's the vision. This is why we're called Cities Church. It's because we want to saturate the Twin Cities with the gospel of Jesus Christ that has transformed us, and then our relationships. And then our church, for our joy and for the glory of God. So when we preach, we preach for that. We preach for that, okay? That's what we're doing here. That's what we want. And I, I want to start this way. I want to say all this at the beginning because today's passage, it aims right at the heart of this. And you're going to see it when we get there, okay? But first, let's dive in. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 29. It's a long passage. It's a dense passage, but we're going to organize it this way. There are two parts. First, you have the law in verses 15 to 24. That's this hand, the law. 15 to 24, and then you have the promise, verses 25 to 29. So the law and the promise, that simple, okay? Now there's some additional things I'm going to say in each of these parts, but this is how we're going to start, and let's pray again before we dig in, just to ask for God's help, because we need God's help. Father, by your grace, according to the riches of your grace in Christ. We ask that in this moment of preaching, please send your Holy Spirit now to accomplish your will. You have to, you have to. Please, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're gonna start part one, the law. And what we read here in these verses is connected back to everything that we've seen so far in Galatians. Remember, Paul is writing this letter to address a problem in the Galatian church. A false teaching has slipped into the church and it was causing confusion about the gospel. The false teaching said that in order to be saved, like in order to be really saved, to be justified, faith in Jesus was not enough, is not enough, and therefore you have to keep the Jewish law. And so Paul is writing this letter to demolish that idea. And he does his demolition work first by telling a personal story of when he confronted Peter, chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. Paul explains that we are justified by faith in Jesus alone, and that faith in Jesus is both necessary and sufficient for salvation. And if you suggest anything else, it makes the death of Jesus pointless. And then Paul reminds us that the Galatian Christians, he reminds the Galatian Christians that they have their own origin story. He tells them that their very existence is because of God 
not their works. And to illustrate this point, Paul brings in the story of Abraham. Now we've spent a lot of time looking at Abraham back when we preached through the book of Genesis. Remember, Abraham started as Abram of Ur of the Chaldeans. Abraham was once a lost pagan idolater in the middle of nowhere, but God came to him by absolute grace and God promised to bless him and his descendants and Abraham believed God. Abraham had faith in God and he was justified through his faith in God and we are too when we have faith in God, which is a completely different way of life than relying upon the law because if you rely upon the law for your justification, you were under a curse. But see, Jesus died to redeem us from that curse. Jesus took the curse for us so that through faith in him, we receive the blessing of Abraham even if you were coming from a place as lost and pagan and idolatrous as Abraham once was. Paul says all of this to us in chapter 2, verse 1, all the way through chapter 3, verse 14. He says all of this to demolish the false teaching, and he does, I think. He's successful. By the time we get to our passage today, There's nothing in this letter that could be left standing, nothing in this church that could be left standing that thinks obedience to the law is needed for justification. Paul has made his point, and he still has more to say. And for this next part in our passage, Paul goes next level, okay? He goes next level. In our passage, what Paul does is he steps back and he compares the two biggest covenants in the Old Testament, the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, all right? And I I want you to see this, but first I need to set it up for a few minutes, okay? So, So hang with me here as we set up these two covenants. First, we have to start with what even is a covenant, right? What is a covenant in in the Bible? Well, a covenant is simply an agreement between two parties with mutual obligations. And when it comes to the relationship between God and humans, this idea of covenant is central. You could say, and some do say, that the whole Bible is just a series of different covenants that God makes with humans. This, the, the idea of a covenant is really just another way to talk about how God relates to us. And God makes several covenants in the Old Testament. And all the covenants are important. But in the Old Testament, there are two really big covenants. And the first covenant is the one that God made with Abraham. God came to Abraham and promised to bless him. And God said that through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. A lot of times this is just called the Abrahamic promise, okay? The second big covenant is the one that God makes with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. We, we preached through this, we saw this in the book of Exodus. The covenant at Sinai was a book of laws for Israel that God gave them through Moses. It included the Ten Commandments and a bunch of other detailed laws that Israel should follow and then blessings and curses if they do or they don't. A lot of times this covenant is just called the Mosaic Law, right? So there are two covenants here. With Abraham, there is the promise, the Abrahamic promise, and with Moses or Sinai, there is the law, the Mosaic law. We tracking with those two covenants? 
I need, I need like a nod. Are we good? We're good. All right. Those are the two covenants. Hang with me, okay? So we, we still got some work to do. Look at verse 15. With the covenants established, these two covenants, look at verse 15. Paul here, he gives a human example on the way covenants work. Paul says that even just on like a people level, a normal people level, nobody makes and ratifies a covenant and then annuls it or changes it, right? Once a covenant is made, it's made. That's the point, right? A covenant is a settled commitment, and everybody understands this. We get this. Look at verse 16. Paul says that God's promise to Abraham, his covenant to Abraham was also with Abraham's offspring, singular, which is Christ. <laughs> Look at verse 16 now. Paul quotes here from, from Genesis twenty-two eighteen. This is Genesis twenty-two eighteen. 18. It says, and in your, God says to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And Paul says here that when God made that promise to Abraham, he made that promise to Abraham and to Jesus, who is Abraham's descendant. Paul says that Jesus is the offspring in view in Genesis 22. So in the book of Genesis, God promised to Abraham and to Jesus that one day the nations, the Gentiles, would be blessed in Jesus by faith. God promised that by covenant. And in case we're reading this and we're still unsure about what Paul's saying here, if we're still unsure, we have verse 17. In verse 17, Paul says, hey, hey, this is what I mean. That's what he's doing. I love, I love verse 17 because in verse 17, Paul, he, he, he wants us to track with him so badly. He says, maybe, look, maybe you've zoned out for a minute, okay? Maybe you're not sure what I'm saying here. Let me, let me spell this out and make this super clear for you. Look, 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 this is what I'm saying. That, that's the literal Greek here. He says, this is what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. God's promise to Abraham came first. The Mosaic law came 430 years later, and the law did not cancel out the promise. The promise still stands. Verse 18, the fulfillment of the promise, Paul says, the blessing we have in Christ our inheritance as the children of Abraham by faith, our justification, it comes in the promise to be received by faith. It is not found in the law that came 430 years later. Our hope and our salvation comes through God's promise, not God's law. And so then that brings up a super important question, why then do we have the law? Are you tracking with Abraham here? I mean, with, 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 uh, with Paul? Why do we have, if this is the case, why do we have the law? If our hope is not in the law, if our obedience to the law does not save us, if Abraham's promise still stands, why did God give us the law? Well, see, Paul's about to tell us, and I can tell you're on the edge of your seats for this, right? He's about to tell us here. In fact, he's going to tell us three important things about the law. And we're going to look at them here. Why did God give us the law? Number one, verse 19, the law was added because of transgressions. Have any of you parents ever left your kids unsupervised before? 
like in a safe way. <laughs> you know? Like, say, say for example, for example, you, you have to run to the hardware store to get a bag of salt because the steps on the front, the front door are icy and you're out of salt, so you gotta go get another bag of salt. And so you tell your kids, you say, hey, I, I'm gonna be gone for half an hour. That's all you say and you leave. And you do that because you know, you know that your kids know that you're their dad. You know that they know you exist, right? You know that. And so things are stable and you leave. However, when you get back, you walk in the front door of your house and it's a complete mess. Like the entire place is just trashed. It looks like a zoo, okay? Like a dirty zoo, okay? <laughs> and when you step into that situation, you start looking around. You know what you do? You start looking around and you say, hey guys, don't eat candy before dinner. Hey, don't throw garbage on the floor. Don't leave the fridge door open. Don't leave the milk out. Where's the top to the milk? Where'd it go? Where's it at? Don't lose it. Don't, no, you, no, no. You cannot bake brownies with orange juice. Don't pull your sister's hair. Don't forget to flush the toilet, okay? See, see, see what happens there? You're adding rules. And you're adding rules because of transgression, see. You, you have to, you have to go all Mount Sinai on your kids. And if they're really bad kids, like if, if we're talking about a nation that is totally depraved, you have to say things like, don't set yourself on fire. And, and don't, don't be gross with animals. And don't murder your children. Things that God said, laws, rules that God gave to Israel. See, the law acted like guardrails to keep Israel from self-ruin because without any prohibitions, if Israel was left to themselves, the nation would have pranced, pranced into destruction like that. Remember the golden calf? Moses, had not, he was not even down from the mountain yet, and the people were gone. So Paul tells us, hey, the law was added because of transgression. Number two, the law, this is the second thing about the law. It was added because of transgression. Number two, the law was never meant to impart life, but to be a guardian. And we see this in verse 21. But first, a little parenthetical here. What is Paul talking about here when he says the angels verse and the intermediary, the mediator in verses 19 and 20? Quickly here, remember Paul is making the case here that our hope is in the promise, not in the law. 
He's, he's making the case that the Abrahamic promise is superior to Mosaic law. And to help make that point, Paul adds at the end here, verse 19, that the law was put into place through angels by an intermediary. He's saying that Mosaic law, which was handed down at Mount Sinai, involves some kind of angelic administration and a human mediator who was Moses. In other words, God did not speak the law directly to the people, and we saw that. God did not speak the law directly to the people, but the law had creaturely mediation. And what's implied here is that the promise was different because God spoke the promise directly to Abraham. And so these covenants are different. The Abrahamic promise and the Mosaic law, they're different, and that might imply that there's more than one God. But Paul assures us, no, 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 it's the same God. There is one God, there's one God who gave two different covenants, and the promise is superior to the law. And so then, does that mean that the law is contrary to the promise? This is the next question. We have to wonder then, does the law contradict the promise? Because they're so different, because the promise is superior, does the law contradict the promise? And Paul says, no, 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 it doesn't. Because of the law's purpose, verse 21, the law was never meant to impart life. If the law could give life, then we don't need the gospel, but that's not what the law was for. Rather, Paul says, the law was for, verse 22, imprisoning everything under sin. Verse 23, holding us captive. Verse 24, being our guardian. You can see all three of those, it's, it's the same idea, right? So, hey, hey kids, I gotta go to the store again to get another bag of salt because we live in Minnesota and it's just icy, you know, all the time. I gotta go to the store, get another bag of salt, but I'm gonna leave this nanny here, okay? And honestly, this nanny is more like a security guard, guard bouncer with tattoos on his face. Um, his name is Sinai and he's got some rules for you, okay? See, here's the thing, Sinai, Sinai is not meant to bless you. It's meant to keep you from drinking Clorox. See, that's, that's what the law is doing. It was never meant to give us life. That's not the purpose. That's the second thing Paul tells us about the law. The third is this, the law had a temporary role in salvation history. And really, this is the point that's most repeated in the passage. And when I say salvation history, I, I mean that on purpose. I want to be clear here that, uh, you know, Paul is not being exhaustive about the law in this passage. He doesn't talk about the law's uses. He doesn't talk about what value it has for us as Christians. Instead, Paul is focusing on the role of the law in God's saving action throughout history. And in that light, Paul says that the law was temporary. Notice all the temporal language in the passage. Verse 19. The law was added because of transgression until, verse 19, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. That is, we, we were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came. You see that? Until, before, until, until the law's role was temporary, and Paul makes that super plain here in the passage. So these are three things to know about the law. 
Paul tells us three things about the law in this passage. Number one, it was added because of transgression. Number two, it was never meant to impart life. And then number three, the law had a temporary role. And all of this that Paul has said is setting up verse 25. Verse 25 is the hinge, okay? Verse 25 is the change, all right? This is where we go from part one about the law to part two about the promise, okay? Well, we track and there's a movement happening here in verse 25. Now we're looking at part two, the promise, and the change that happens here, it comes through two simple words in verse 25. It's the two words, but now. Everybody look at those words if you can in verse 25. But now. Now it's, it's hard to overstate how big a deal this is for Paul. Because up to this point, we've seen it, we've seen it. Up to this point, Paul is, he's saying over and over again, until, until, until the law is temporary, until faith came, until the coming faith, until Christ came. But now here in verse 25, Paul gets to say, hey, hey, but now, now, finally, now, now that faith has come, now that Jesus has come, now that the gospel is here, Paul says. This changes everything. It's interesting in this letter. If you, were to read, if you were to read through the entire letter of Galatians, you notice that compared to Paul's other letters, he does not say a lot about the second coming of Jesus or our future resurrection. Or really in, in Galatians, he doesn't say a lot about the future at all, which is unusual. But the reason is that the Galatians did not need to be reminded of their Christian future because they had forgotten about their Christian now. Oh, how important it is for us, brothers and sisters, to remember the now of the Christian life to remember the now of gospel reality. Do you know, right? Do you know the nows of gospel reality that are true of you in this moment? Do you know what they are? Do you know the gospel now? I want you to think for a minute. Think for a minute about your own life, okay? Think about the, think about the hardest, most difficult thing that you have going on right now in your life. Are you, are you thinking about it? What's the hardest thing you got going on? Look, it is good news that in Christ, your future is bright. In Christ, truly, truly, the best is always yet to come. Now, that doesn't mean that every circumstance is going to go the way you want it to go in this world. Sometimes, oftentimes, God calls us to suffering. He calls us to disappointment. But still, we do hope in the future. We are called to hope, church. And, however, we can't begin to imagine our future hope if we can't recognize the grace that God has already given us now. 
God says something about you now. In this moment, right now, God says things about you, truths about you that transcend what, whatever kind of circumstance you're going through. And it is important for us to know what those things are. How, how, how do you get through the hard stuff? How do you get through the difficult times? Yes, yes, you, you think about what God will do. Yes, you look forward. And also, we remember, we must remember what God has done. We look forward and we look back to the cross of Jesus Christ, and we embrace the now of who God says we are. And so what I want to do here to close the sermon is I want to tell you what that is. And I know, and you know, that I'm going to say things about who you are, and you're not going to feel it. We don't feel it. I'm going to say true things about you, and you won't feel it. And it doesn't matter. (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. It's still true of you. And we still must remember these things. In Christ, in Christ, this is your reality now. Number one, in Christ, you are a child of God. Verse 26, that's where we see this, 25 first. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The Apostle John says the same thing in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who received Jesus, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. John says the same thing in 1 John, chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 8 and in Ephesians chapter 5. The New Testament is clear all throughout that Christians, you, you, Christian, brother, sister, you are, by faith in Jesus, you are a child of God. And I'm going to guess that for many of us, you've heard that before, right? We've heard heard this before. We're going to see it next week. Pastor Joshua is going to say it again next week in chapter 4. We've read this before. We've heard this before. We know that in Christ we are children of God, but do we really get it? I mean, like on a daily basis, in our felt reality, do we really know what it means to be God's children? Toward the end of last year, um, I had been studying Galatians pretty slowly in the mornings, and I've been, been meditating, especially on this point. And uh, it was an early morning, and everyone was asleep. It was pitch dark outside. I'm in my study. My Bible is open. My lamp is on. The house is silent. It's my it's my favorite time of the day. Okay, <laughs> and I'm reading and meditating and journaling on Galatians 3 into chapter 4. And I'm just chewing on this fact that in Christ, I am a son of God. I'm a son of God. And I'm thinking about that and I'm trying to put it together, and I'm, I'm trying to, to hold together this fact that this, this, tr- this truth, this fact of who I am is not just meant to be known, but it's actually meant to be practiced. We, we actually are called to relate to God as His children, and what that means is that we call God Father. 
We call him Father, and I'm journaling this, and I'm, I'm trying to grasp what it means, and, and as I'm in silence, as I'm in silence writing these words to God in worship, as I'm saying to God in worship, I can call you Father, as I'm writing the word Father, F-A-T-H, all of a sudden my study door cracks open, and as I'm writing the word Father, a little voice on the other side of the door says, Father? I was stunned. I was stunned. This is not a normal quiet time, okay? Just so you know. I'm stunned by this. And it was Micah. And I I told him to, to, to come into my study, and so he came in, and I said, buddy, that is crazy. Look at this. I just was writing the word Father. I just was calling God Father as you said that to me. That's crazy. That's crazy. And it is crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy that we can relate to God. It's crazy that I can relate to God in the same way that my son relates to me. That he truly, he really is my father through faith in Jesus. God is my father and he's your father too through faith in Jesus. Through faith in Jesus, he's your father too, brothers and sisters. In Christ, we are the children of God. And this changes everything vertically. This changes everything. And it also changes things horizontally. And that's what we see secondly here. You're a child of God, number one. And then number two, you're part of a new family. Verse 27, Paul says that for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The the point here is that the the point of baptism is he's he's invoking this metaphor of incorporation. When you are united to Jesus by faith, when you're baptized into Jesus, you become a new person and you live like a new person and that new person is part of a new family. That's verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, within the Jewish worldview, the major distinctions among people next to Jewish Gentile was slave free and then male female. These are the three categories of ethnicity, economic capacity, and sex. And these categories, of course, are still very much active today. These are distinctions within our world, among people in our world. But the issue in Jewish thought was not just that these distinctions existed, it was that these distinctions were used as a primary marker to determine different degrees of religious access. Under the law, The best case scenario, like the best way to have a a great standing before God was to be a Jewish free man. Paul is saying that in Christ, it doesn't work that way. In Christ, there is nothing about ourselves that keeps us from God or brings us to God. Differences among people still exist, 
But those differences have no bearing on our relationship to God because our relationship to God is solely based on our union with Christ. We are all one in Christ. Now some have taken, some readers have taken verse 28 the wrong way. So just know, this does not mean, Paul is not saying that we become androgynous humans, right? And we're all the exact replica of one another. It's like the the mascot of Greendale Community College in the show Community. You guys, ask a friend if you don't know what, that's not what happens when we believe in Jesus, okay? We don't become this androgynous being, okay? We're different people, beautifully different people. The truth now, though, in Christ is that none of those differences are an advantage or a disadvantage when it comes to our standing before God, because we can only, all of us, come to God the same way, faith in Jesus. By faith in Christ, everyone, no matter where you're coming from, no matter what your story is, by faith in Christ, you become a son or daughter of God. In Christ, you become part of the family, in the family tree of Abraham, where by faith in Christ, we all have the same status and we all have the same access. God is the same kind of father to all of us because of our union with Jesus and understanding that union is what then leads to unity, see. In the church, in this new family, we're not competing with one another, (laughs) but we're encouraging one another. We want to build one another up because we're convinced that when my brother is built up and when my sister is built up, when we're each built up, it builds everyone up. And so we become this kind of family that is all looking toward and praying toward and working toward one another's good. And what is that good? What is that good? What is the good life in the Christian life? Is it position? Is it status? No. Our good that we seek is our being assured of the love of God. Brothers and sisters, your good, your good is to know more deeply that God loves you. That through your faith in Jesus, not on the basis of your performance, but solely because of the atoning death of Jesus in your place. God your Father has set his love on you and that will never change. What good could possibly be better than that, right? To be assured of the love of God for our joy and the glory of God, that is what we want, City Church. That's what we're after. That's what we're praying toward and looking toward and working toward, and that's what brings us now to the table. Because at this table each week, as we take the bread, as we take the cup, this is what's happening. As we take the bread and cup, we are moving 
just a little bit closer to comprehending with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God in Christ. And so this, this morning, if you receive God's love for you in Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus, if you are united to Jesus by faith, we invite you, come eat and drink with us. His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.